you will take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. We continue our series in the book of the Revelation. These first five or six messages have really been laying the groundwork for what we will get into um, really beginning in the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of times. And uh, um, uh, if you see on the screen, the title of the series is The Unveiling. Today, the key to Revelation, the key to Revelation you know, keys are very important to us. With them, we do a lot of things. We open doors, we start cars, we open padlocks, we open lock boxes and control security, and even more than that, more to the point is that the keys that you have today are not necessarily keys uh, like you, we used to carry in our pockets. Some of us have, have a, a Internet access, and we have to have key, a key called a password to get in. And so keys are very, very important. Revelation is a book for which it seems a key is needed to understand it. Now, years ago, they were, there was a theory out there that there had been a key in the early days and that key had been lost. And so to those folks, this book remains an enigma. An enigma. But that means you can't understand it, Alan. Sorry about that. It means you can't understand it. But the, truth, but the truth is, is that I believe that there is a key here that helps us understand how it's put together, which in turn will help us understand uh, the book and how to apply it to our lives. Because here's what I'm going to tell you. This world is coming to an end. If it doesn't come to an end in my lifetime with Jesus returning, it may come to an end at its own hands. But it's coming to an end, and we better know where we're headed and who we're headed with. Let's read, uh, now we're going to read uh, a couple of verses that were the end of the message last week. It just kind of sets it up. So if you'll stand together, we'll read uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 20. If you can, you stand. Listen intently, for this is indeed God's holy word. John writes, when I saw him, time to remind you, that's Jesus. When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his, hand on, his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the gold, seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's our prayer today that you'll take your word and you'll open, open our hearts to it. Take your spirit and lance our hearts and then pour your word into it that it will speak to us even today. In your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Every time we embark in going through Revelation, everybody's worried about it being too complicated. So today, as we look at the key, I just want to give you kind of a, I want to give you a, a, what I see in this, a little way to get your hands on what's going on in the Revelation. And we're going to begin in three parts. You can look on the back of your bulletin and kind of follow along, write it down. First of all, let's talk about an outline, the outline of Revelations. Now, an outline helps a person see the big picture. It is no small feat every week to have you a, an outline on the screen. 
And yet, it is worth every second if it helps us understand and embrace and hang on to the message that God gives us. If we see the outline, then we will be able to hang on to it and understand it better. Now, a couple of weeks ago in a message, I offered to you that, that there have been several suggestions about how to outline the revelation. One said, uh, Dr. Merritt, and I found out that Dr. Merritt didn't originate this, was the seven sevens of Revelation. If you think about it, it's the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven personages, the seven vows, seven judgments, and seven new things, and about three or four chapters apiece, the seven sevens. It works well. Some other folks say that it should be divided into a and outlined into four sections, seen from the picture of the seer, the seer being John. He is seeing all these things happening. And it speaks of the seer in Patmos. It speaks of the seer in heaven. It speaks of the seer uh, in a, uh, on a great and high mountain. And it speaks of the seer in the churches. Well, that's good, and that's fine. Some others say, well, let's outline it. By two sections, the first 11 chapters and the last 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters show the kingdom of this world, which gives way to the last 11 chapters, to the kingdom of our Lord. Well, that works too. Well, all that's fine and well and good for outlines, but what does God, how does God outline this book? I believe that we find God's outline, our Lord's outline, in verse 19. Therefore, write what you have seen, write what is, and write what will be. So, if you put it in his outline, it seems to me that we begin in the past. He says, write what you have seen. Now, when he said that to John, can you imagine all that John could have written about? I mean, think about it. He could have written about all those three years that he spent with Jesus. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was in the crowd when Jesus took a few fish and loaves and he fed the 5,000. He was there when he spit on the dirt, made mud and made the blind man to see. He was there when the death, dead was raised. He was actually there when Jesus ascended back to heaven. He could have written about many things, but you know what he chose to write about? He chose to write about his most recent experience that had just happened, and he wrote about the glorified Christ. He felt like we needed to not just see the picture of the human side of Jesus, but the divinity side of Jesus. He wrote about those eyes of fire that can look to your very core of who you are and see what you're doing. He wrote about the purity and the white hair. He wrote about the judgment of the brass feet. He wrote about the robe with him being the prophet, priest, and king. He wrote about the sash, about his authority, and about his power. He painted a picture that even today when you close your eyes, having read it, you can see Jesus. That's what he had seen in the past. And then he moves, and that's chapter 1, by the way. Chapter 1, the past. And then he moves to chapter 2 and 3, what we'll call the present. The things that are. And when you read, and we will start this in the next couple of weeks, the second and third chapter of Revelation, you are reminded of the things that are. These two letters are not just about things that are past. These two letters depict and describe the church. Now, when he wrote them, the church was coming out of its infancy. It was coming to have taken on some second generational characteristics. 
But you know what he points out in the modern day church, in the church age? He points out there's no perfect churches. He points out, he points out that he is still walking among the churches. He points out the importance of the churches. He knows their condition. He knows their successes. He knows their failures. He knows whether they desire to do right. And he knows for sure that he desires to write the course of every church that he mentions. Then we move from the past, which is chapter 1, to the present, chapters 2 and 3. And chapter 4 through the end of the book is what we call the prophetic. Now, most of us get real hyper when we start talking about prophecy. But the prophetic is that which is yet to come, that which yet will be. If you look, if you look and you read in that verse where it says... That which will take place after this, actually that Greek word is metatata, those things which shall be. The thing I want you to understand about prophecy, perhaps you already do understand it, is this. Prophecy is history written in advance. Prophecy is history written in advance. For you see, when God says it, it's done. There's an old song. The youth choir used to really tag out on God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me. Let me tell you something. When God said it, it don't matter whether you believe it. It don't matter whether you act on it. It don't matter whether you respond to it. It don't even matter whether you uh, acknowledge it. When God says it, it is done. You see, the prophecy is telling us about what's coming next. Now, let me just give you a preview. It picks up, the prophetic picks up in chapter 4. In chapter 4, there's a, there's a door open and a voice says, come up here. And from chapter 4 on, you never hear the church on earth mentioned again. In fact, the next time you hear the church mentioned after it leaves chapter 3 is in chapter 19 when he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the reason so many of us believe that that, that is representative of a thing called the rapture. You see, it, it talks to us about the future. It talks to us about what God has for us. And if you get this outline in your head, the past, the present, and the prophetic, one, two, three, four, through the end, it should lift your spirit. It should make the child of God long for the future. We sang years ago, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Do you believe that today? Do you, do you have a heartbeat for that today? Or are you singing that with your mouth and hanging on as hard as you can to the things of this world? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And when you do that, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, folks, when we think about this outline, the past, the present, the prophetic, let me tell you, he knows your past. He knows the problems that you face. He knows the wrongs that you've done. He knows that the sin you committed. He knows the rights you've done. And he sees your present condition. He sees the decisions that you make, particularly spiritual decisions. He sees how you impact other people. And he is still working and walking among his church and his people. There's the outline. The second thing, and you're going to say, Brother Jerry, you've lost your mind. You're not giving us any Bible today. But really I am, and you hang on till we get to the end. 
The second thing that I would suggest to you that I, that I see here is the orientation. The orientation. Now, it is important for you to be oriented. Now, when I, when I was in pilot training, although a private pilot does not have to fly by instruments, there is the chance that you'll get up in the sky, you'll run into a cloud cover, and you'll have to watch your instruments until you get back to your VFR, visual. And so they put that little mask on you. Probably some pilots in the room. They put that mask on you. You have to watch your orientation because up in the air you will lose orientation and you may be flying sideways and you'll think you're flying up. You may be flying down if you don't know how to how to discern that and you'll fly into the ground. In fact, that's what killed John F. Kennedy Jr. Orientation is not a big deal, not a big, uh, real popular thing for most people. When I went to college, we had freshman orientation. Students hated it, but it was required because you needed to know where the buildings were. You needed to know where the medical facilities were. You needed to know where the library was. And if you got in trouble, you needed to know what your rights were. You needed to know how things needed to be reported. You needed to know all these things, and it was orientation. Last year, I went on a cruise. I think y'all went on a cruise this year. And uh, we always hate it. Every time you go on a cruise, they take the first hour and a half, and they do this emergency orientation. Now, you always kind of dismiss that thing. But I'm going to tell you something. If you ever have an emergency, you want to be, you want to have had that orientation training because you want to know where to go. You want to know what to do. You see, when we get into the revelation, it's going to be important that we get orientated to it. And we find that in, in verse 20 when he says the secret, that is the mystery. That is, thing, that is something that has never been told before. And he tells us how to be orientated to this book. So let me give you the three, the three hinge points. First of all, never forget his church. His church. In chapter 1, it's full of this, of this picture of the lampstand. You see, when I say His church, I'm not talking about Southern Baptist. I'm not talking about United Methodist. I'm not talking about Pentecostal. Uh, but I am not also not talking about Hueytown. I am not talking about Pleasant Ridge or Hunter Street. When I talk about His church, I'm talking about the born-again, redeemed children of God. Because it is around the church that God does all of His works. In this book, the church is center stage. The church is most valuable to Him. The church is the lampstand. There's a sad, there's a sad thing going on in a, in a our country today by well-meaning believers. You don't have to be involved in a church. Just get your heart right. You don't have to unite with a church. Just get your heart right. All I want to say to you is that when you get your heart right before the Lord, you will be involved in a local church. Jesus came to establish the church. He died to give the church life. He rose again. And one day, he's coming back for the, say it with me, church. It is the church 
That is His bride. That is His body. Can you imagine standing before the judgment seat of Christ and saying, you know, Lord, yes, you saved me, but I really didn't think you wanted me to be involved with your church. Now, the church isn't perfect. And if you wait to join a local church till you find a perfect church, first of all, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. And if you find a perfect church, you can find you can know that somebody's hiding something. Because as we go through these seven churches in chapters two and three, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, those churches in that order. Look at all the ways you can describe those churches in that order. The formal church, the fearful church, the faltering church, the false church, the falling church, the feeble church, the fashionable church, the careless church, the confronted church, the compromising church, the corrupted church, the comfortable church, the consistent church, the complacent church, the staid church, the scared church, the shallow church, the sinful church, the societal church, the spiritual church, and the shameless church. You see, folks... The local assembly is not perfect, but let us never forget it is His church. And if it is His church, He should be in control. It is His building. It is His body. It is His bride. The church age is about His church. It is not about my church, and it is not about your church. His church. Be orientated about that. Everything you see through the revelation is going to point us to his church. Then, then look at his called. Well, we know that everyone who is born of God is called by God. If, you're not, if you've never been called by God, you're not saved. Because the first calling God puts on, a, on the heart and soul of a lost person is to come to salvation. Come to him for salvation. The text is once again, in verse 20, orientating us to things that are important to him. He comes back to the seven stars. Second time he's mentioned the stars, seven stars. That's the messengers, the angels, the pastors, so says W.A. Criswell. The letters are written to the angels of the church, to the messengers of the church, to the pastors of the church. Our Lord is holding the pastors of the church in his right hand. The call to the pastors is to deliver the divine message to the body. We're reminded that, he's, that he holds the pastors, the leaders, the stars, the messengers in his right hand. Signifies importance, authority, and responsibility, and even protection. These folks are God's spokesperson that stand in and speak the message for Almighty God, that lead out. And the symbolism of his right hand speaks of all those things. How many times in this last 35 years have you and I witnessed churches where God sent them a messenger. They decided they knew better than God's man. And so they ran him off. And when you do that, you just well close the door and write Ichabod across the door. The glory has departed. I could take you to a church that I know God was not in for 25 years. 
when you'd walk in, it's cold as ice. And when you dig into their history, you find out that they mistreated God's man. I said it last week. I'll say it again. The pastor, forgetting for a second that I'm a pastor, the pastor of every church is God's gift to that church. His church is called. One more thing that we need to be orientated about is his care. His care. As he holds the pastor and the keys to death and hell in his right hand. Did you catch that connection? He holds the pastor, the stars, the angels, the messengers of the church, and the key to death and hell in the right hand. It's safe to say that our Lord is still walking among his church. It says he's walking among the the seven churches. That means every church. That seven is the number for completion. He's walking among every church. I mean, when you when you read chapter two and three, I'll encourage you in the next two weeks, go and read chapter two and three. And it'll picture almost any church that you have ever witnessed. Now, dispensationalists will tell you that the church age is seven dispensations, and there's a church there's an age of the church of Ephesus. There's an age of the church at Smyrna. There's an age of the church at Pergamum. And I'm not going to discount that. Certainly you can see that. But what I will say to you is that you can see all seven churches in every age of church history. As you read those, he he cares for his churches so much that he's honest with them. To every church he gives a commendation. He gives a condemnation. He gives consequences. And he gives corrections. And please hear this today. Our God is not politically correct. He is eternally correct. And he cares for every church. He cares for every church member. He wants his children to understand. He wants his children to understand what he's trying to do. And he's trying to redeem a lost and dying world. If he's come into your heart in the same way that he's come into your heart and redeemed you, he is now trying to redeem those outside of grace. And he's using us as the church to be that lampstand, that lighthouse. Sadly, a lampstand or a lighthouse requires oil. And the biblical... Symbolism for oil stands for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has to get loose. And that leads us into the last thing, the operation. Just exactly, now that we have an outline, now that we are kind of orientated to what's important to him, now, how's it going to operate? How will it impact me? That's what everybody wants to know. What's in it for me? I wish I could change that question. Everybody goes to a church and they want to know, what's in it for me? Derek Johnson years ago framed it better. He said, instead of asking what is in it for me, why not ask what's in me for it? 
Actually, I got outcome up there, but if you would change that to operation, they can't do it on the screen. How's it going to operate? And I want to I want to close by reminding you of three things: the way this book, the Revelation, and every other page will operate. First of all, God knows your past. He doesn't just know it secondhand. He's been there. Every sin you've committed, he saw it. Every mistake you made, he saw it. Every time you mistreated a brother, he saw it. Every time you were kind, he saw it. Every time you were right, he saw it. Every time you were wrong, he saw it. He not only knows it secondhand, he's been there, he's seen it, and he knows what's behind. And there's nothing that is more telling than in the first chapter of Revelation where it talks about his eyes of fire. There is, there is very few things that will stand up against fire. Those eyes of fire will, will seek you and search you, penetrate you like a laser beam to your heart. He knows your past. Whatever you think's hidden in your past, God saw it. He sees it. He knows it. And the only thing that God forgets, now please listen, the only thing that God forgets is a sin that you've brought to the cross and allowed the blood of Jesus to flow over that sin because, listen, it's not just enough to come to the cross because you confessed it as sin and you've repented of it, which means you've turned your back on it. If you don't repent of it and you don't confess it, there is no forgiveness. And it is like David's sin was before God. He said, my sin is ever before you. God knows your past. He knows when you walk down the aisle whether a change really happened in your heart or not. When you went through the waters of baptism, whether that was just getting wet or whether it really was symbolizing uh, an external symbol of what had gone on internally. He knows. Hang on to that thought. And then let me say this to you. God, number two, has a planned future. For you. He has a planned future for you. Most of us know what Jeremiah said as he quoted God, as he wrote down what God said. He says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you hope in the future. I think Don used that the other night in our business meeting. I know the plans I have for you. Most of the time we stop reading there. And, but the next verse qualifies that. I know the plans I have for you, not for disaster, for welfare, for you to have a future and a hope. And then he goes on, he says, you will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And here's when. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with half your heart. 
No. You will only seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. There is no way that we can search for him with our whole heart when we're so tied up in the things of this world that it keeps distracting us and derailing us from following and seeking after him. Half-heartedness never has nor never will find God's perfect plan. And make no mistake, just as surely as God's got a planned future for you as a redeemed person, if you've never come to Christ, if he's never changed your heart on the very root private level, if he doesn't walk with you day by day, he has a plan for those folks too. You can find it in Revelation 20, verse 15 that says, anyone not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me be clear about a couple of things. I was raised in a country church where when the preacher preached about hell, he shouted and he screamed and he scared it out of you. But please listen. Whether a preacher shouts and screams about the horrors of hell or whether he just communicates them to you, they're still horrible. It's still true. Scripture records that for the person outside of Christ, they will go to that place called hell. A place not even prepared for, for mankind. Prepared for the devil and his demons. And Peter writes and tells us that God is desirous that no one, no one perish in the fires of hell. I understand some of the theological implications, but for us simple-minded people like me, if you wind up in hell, it'll be over God's objections because he's done all he has to do to reach you. God loved the world so much. The world. God loved the world. God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son, that if you will believe in him, walk with him, and talk with him, you will not perish. Which brings us to the third thing I want to say. God has a plan for you now. Has a plan for you now. And that plan is for you, first of all, to recognize that you're not perfect. To recognize that you have fallen short. Romans tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans tells us for all have sinned, fallen short of God. Romans tells us the wages, the payment, the compensation of sin is death. Both physical death on earth and eternal death. And in this, Rob quoted a while ago, but God demonstrated this love for us in this. He didn't wait for us to get ready. He didn't wait for us to get right. He didn't wait for us to get good. But while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. 
And Paul finishes it up in Romans. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The key to Revelation, the key to Revelation is finding Jesus because he found you. The better way maybe to say it, that when Jesus speaks to you, you respond to him. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message, and I know nobody but me knows anything about this. But have you ever tried to do something special for your spouse? You tried to do something special and secret? Somehow it never works. And you know what? I have found with Deborah Watts, she's homesick today, I have found with Deborah Watts that it's easier just to tell her what's going on. And you go, well, you don't let her have any surprises. Well, I do, but here's what I'm going to tell you. Invariably, if I try to surprise her with something unknowing, she would never do this on purpose. She's not a mean person. Invariably, her OCD kicks in, and she wants to know what I'm doing this for, what I'm doing that for, what I'm doing something else for, and pretty soon she short circuits the whole thing. You know with what I'm saying? Please listen. If you've never met Christ... And if you've never walked with Christ, please listen. It's just like me trying to do something for my spouse. Christ has done everything he can. He even sends the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Don't thwart what he's trying to do in your life. Go along. Because you see, the big mystery in the Revelation is the bride. One day. Here's the key. You got it? I'm telling you the end of the book. One day the bride is going to meet the bridegroom. Now are you a part of the bride? Jesus is committed to a spotless, sinless bridegroom. Will you be a part of that? Let's pray together.